Blog Talk Radio. Enter the zone. The Prophecy Zone. Your end time watchman. Bringing you light in a dark world. Where truth is rivaled with a lie. And the matrix is normal life. Luke 21. And there shall be signs in the sun, and in the moon, and in the stars, and upon the earth distress of nations, with perplexity, the sea and the waves roaring, men's hearts failing them for fear, and for looking after those things which are coming on the earth, for the powers of heaven shall be shaken, and then shall they see the Son of Man coming in a cloud, with power and great glory. And when these things begin to come to pass, then look up and lift up your heads, for your redemption draweth nigh. You are now in the zone. So be ready to enter the light or truth about the end of days, so you will be ready for the coming of the Lord. You are in the zone, the prophecy zone. So join us for the next hour as we look at world events in line with Bible prophecy, so you'll be informed and be ready for the coming of Jesus Christ. Everybody, this is Brenda Johnson on As the Day Approaches. I want to thank you for joining me today on this episode. We are continuing to talk about Israel. Today's topic is a very interesting topic, and uh, it is a very uh, current in our day and age. And what is happening in Israel, we need to pay attention to. We need to watch for the day of the Lord as he is uh, getting closer every day. Uh, Our title today on this program is Israel and Palestine, War for Jerusalem. And have you ever um, started studying a subject, really diving into a subject, and then realizing there is so much information that you really got to look further into particular um, pieces of that information. Well, this is what has happened today, and I am going to have two parts to this show. I thought maybe it was going to be one, but we are going to talk about for two weeks Israel and Palestine, the war for Jerusalem. We are going to focus on Jerusalem and why Jerusalem is such a hot spot today. Uh, My name, again, is Brenda Johnson, and it is a beautiful day from where I'm sitting. It's a beautiful day to look out my windows and to enjoy the nice fall weather here in Missouri of the United States of America. I want to Welcome everyone who has joined me today as we go forward with this exciting episode. I will take you today deep inside the issues of Jerusalem. When did Israel first make a name for itself and how did it become such an international city? There is debate today of what this is. We're going to talk about that. Why do the nations care about Jerusalem? And will a nation stand or fall based on what they do within it or for the cause of it? What does it mean to Israel, to Islam, to the Palestinians? Why fight for it or defend it? 
Now, Psalm 122 says to pray for the peace of Jerusalem. May those who love you be secure. What does this mean? A lot of people are asking that question today. Now, will Israel go to war to keep the city of Jerusalem? Because they said that it will never, they will never allow it to be divided again. Will the Palestinians, on the other hand, fight and terrorize until they get it? Now, I'm sure some people are having a little problem with me saying uh, about the Palestinians to terrorize until they get the city. Well, this has been the nature of the Palestinians. This has been the nature of Islam. And I know that it is um, probably indicative to to, uh, align the Palestinians with Islam because Islam is so closely associated with them. They're supporting the Palestinians. But we're going to take a look at who the Palestinians are. Now, tomorrow... Uh, Saturday, I am going to be on the show with Susan Fuzio on prophety, prophet, <laughs> prophetic news, uh, her show, Prophetic News. And she is. we're going to talk about who the Palestinians are. Today, I'm going to give you a look at Jerusalem. And tomorrow, we'll go even deeper into who the Palestinians are. But I'm going to give you a taste of that today. I'm going to introduce you to that. I'm going to show you who the people of Jerusalem are. I'm going to show you who the Palestinians are and why they're so uh, closely associated with Islam. And I know it's kind of strange for me to say that because most people think they're Arabs, aren't they? Well, we're going to find out today what I mean and what, what this is all about. I'm dividing this into two parts because, first of all, I want you to take a look from a historical viewpoint and from a biblical viewpoint and kind of a current viewpoint of what Jerusalem is, who can claim Jerusalem, and what's the uproar. Then next week I am going to go into the war for Jerusalem. I mean, today there's always been a war for Jerusalem, but today I am going to focus on um, the uh, war for Jerusalem. Like, what is happening today? What will they do? What will be the process? So I have got a lot to share with you today, so I am going to go ahead and start moving ahead with it. If you hear me moving around a little bit, it's because I have some puppies, like I've been saying. And I have one who's demanding my attention right now, just like a child. Um, So if you hear me moving around a little bit, that's why. But I'm settled again. Okay, so let's get started here. Uh, I mentioned Psalm 22. It says, pray for the peace of Jerusalem. May those who love you be secure. The rest of that verse says this. uh, 122, 6 through 9 says, Uh, Starting with seven, may there be peace within your walls and security within your citadels. For the sake of my brothers and friends, I will say, peace be within you. For the sake of the house of the Lord our God, I will seek your prosperity. 
I'm bringing to, together today um, information that I have read on the Internet, articles I've found, also a few books of interest that you may want to check into because I think they're excellent. Of course, uh, the last few times I've been saying uh, Jerusalem rushing towards midnight hour. We're not going to focus on a lot on that today, um, but we, I'm going to take a little piece out of there. Also, Dora Gold, The Fight for Jerusalem. That has been another book that I've been featuring on this show. I'm not going to even talk about that a lot. I may quote from that. But next week I'll talk more from uh, that particular book because it gives a lot of insight. Today I'm going to focus on a few uh, debatable issues and scripture and um, one of the books I'm reading right now that is so exciting to me, and I love it so much, is called The Coming Last Days Temple by Randall Price. Love the book. It is a huge, fat book. I've had it for probably, I'd say about 11 years. Have I read it? No, not until now. So I got it when it was first off the press in 1999. Uh, A friend of mine bought it for me because it looks so interesting to me, and I was into uh, a lot of Israeli uh, folk. I did. I, I taught dance and uh, choreographed Israeli folk dance. We represented Israel in uh, international affairs and things like that. So Israel was very prominent in my heart, and so somebody bought this book for me. But I have not picked it up until now, and it is excellent. In the coming days, I'm going to share some insight from that. But so much for that. Let's get going. Okay, now, from an article uh, called Jewish Return to Israel in the End Times, a guy doesn't have the author of this particular article, but he says, about eight years ago, I heard an interesting talk about the percentage of Jews living in Israel as compared to the percentage of Jews still living in the world. He predicted that most Jews would be back in Israel by 2012. What is interesting about this article is that it goes into uh, the percentage of growth from the time Israel became a nation in 1948 until today, and that um, it is mentioned that uh, Israel, most of the Jews in the world are almost back to the land, and that by uh, 2012, which is, Next year, hmm, that's only a couple months away. Uh, most of the Jews will be back in the in the land of Israel, but there's a slight interesting um, uh, problem with all of the Jews being back because a lot of Jews are in the United States of America, and most of the Jews that have been sent back or, or have gone back to the state of Israel is because of persecution. We haven't had this here yet in the United States of America, but that doesn't mean it's not coming. I see things coming to our land that um, makes me apprehensive. It makes me prayerful. It makes me beware. It is a warning to our nation. Our nation is under great duress right now, and I believe a day is coming that not only Christians will be persecuted like never before, but also Jews will be too, and Jews will be Uh, pushed back to their land, even from here. So in this particular article, it it has some interesting things about um, where the Jews have come from 
since their time in 1948, since they became a nation in 1948. From the East, many Jews living in the Middle East countries moved to Israel during the 1900s. After Israel reclaimed independence in 1948, more Jews moved to their ancient homeland after being forced out of various Arab countries in which they have been living for centuries from the West. During the mid-1900s, hundreds of thousands of Jews living in the West, meaning the Europe Europe and the United States, began moving to Israel to escape various persecutions, most notably the Holocaust in Nazi Germany. Like I said, we haven't seen a whole lot here in the United States, but some have willingly um, gone back to their land. I think it's coming. From the north, hundreds of thousands of Jews living in the former Soviet Union have moved to Israel since the 1980s. I was very much involved in uh, praying and participating in getting Jews back to the land of Israel from Russia. From the south, during the 1980s and 1990s, Israel struck a deal with Ethiopia's communist government to allow Jews of Ethiopia to move to Israel. On the weekend of May 25, 1991, for example, 14,500 Ethiopian Jews were, were airlifted to Israel. Isaiah's prophecy was also correct in saying that the north, Russia, and the south, Ethiopia, Ethiopia would have, be, have to be persuaded to allow their Jews to move to Israel. Many countries pressured Russia for years before it began to allow its Jews to leave. And Ethiopia had to be paid a ransom to allow its Jews to leave. Isaiah's prophecy was also correct in saying that the Jews would return from the ends of the earth. And Isaiah said that many centuries before the Jews had been scattered to the ends of the earth, had said that they would be returning as well. During the past 100 years, Jews living as far as, as East China, as far west as the west coast of the United States, as far north as Scandinavia, and as far, far south as South Africa, Australia, and South America have moved to Israel. Jeremiah 23, 3-6 says this, I myself will gather the remnant of my flock out of the countries where I have driven them, and I will bring them back to their pasture, where they will be fruitful and increase in number. I will place shepherds over them who will tend them, and they will no longer be afraid or terrified, nor will, I, will any be missing, declares the Lord. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up to David a righteous branch, a king who will reign wisely, and we know that's talking about Jesus, and do what is just and right in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved, and Israel will be in, live in safety. This is the name by which he will be called, the Lord our righteousness. And we know that's talking about Jesus, but we also know that that's talking about Jesus' second coming, because we have not seen peace yet. So then... The days are coming, declares the Lord, when people will no longer say, as surely as the Lord lives, 
who brought the Israelites up out of Egypt. But they will say, as surely as the Lord lives, who brought the descendants of Israel up out of the land of the north and out of the land of all the countries where he had banished them, then they will live in their own land. We are seeing this fulfillment before our eyes. Israel has been expelled from their homeland twice. And, and uh, <coughs> excuse me, and they are currently in the process of returning after the second expulsion. There is a prophecy that they they are exiled twice and they will come back. This is the second in the second diaspora where they've been uh, sent out throughout all the earth, and now they're being brought back. Isaiah eleven eleven through twelve says this: In that day, the Lord will reach out His hand a second time to reclaim the remnant that is left of His people from Assyria, from Lower Egypt, from Upper Egypt, from Cush, from Elam, from Babylonia, from Hamath, and from the islands of the sea. He will raise the banner for the nations and gather the exiles of Israel. He will assemble the scattered people of Judah from the four quarters of the earth. More than 2,500 years ago, the Assyrians and Babylonians forced the people of Israel out of their homeland. Many returned during the centuries that followed, and then Jesus appeared about 2,000 years ago and announced that he is the Messiah. Later, the people of Israel were again forced out of their land by the Romans in 135 AD and scattered to the countries throughout the world. But during the past few centuries, millions of exiled Jews around the world have returned to their ancient homeland. And this is one of the reasons why Christians say that the world is being prepared for the return of Jesus Christ. Because as Jeremiah has prophesied long ago, the Messiah is to appear after the people of Israel return to their land. The phrase in Jeremiah 23, 5, uh, that says, I will raise up to David a righteous branch, a king, refers to the Messiah. And that will be a king and a descendant of David who reigned over Israel about 3,000 years ago. Christians believe that when Jesus returns, he will establish a kingdom of peace and righteousness. What about Jerusalem? Now we know that they we see this before our very eyes that they have been established in their land, that they have been a, they have been brought back to the land and they are still going back to the land and they still will be going back to the land until the Jews have been collected together in one place. Now, in uh that particular graft of uh uh, of the people arriving in Israel, it says that by 19, I think it was 1993, I might be incorrect about the date, but in the 90s sometime, uh, there were recorded 6 million Jews now living in the state of Israel. Very, very interesting. In an article which I found also on a website called albershra.org, um, the article is called Jerusalem in History. And I first went onto this site because I was extremely interested in studying the history of Jerusalem. 
says here, uh, the full title is Jerusalem in History, Notes on the Origins of the City and Its Tradition of Tolerance. Very interesting title. So it perked my interest, and I went and I um, began reading this article. First, it was quite interesting, and then I realized that it was written by somebody who believes Israel has no right to Jerusalem. I'm going to go through some of this article with you, not the, not it in totality, but we are going to talk about some of these issues that are raised. Uh, is Jerusalem rightly in the land? And do they rightly have um, uh, claims to Jerusalem, the city of Jerusalem? Uh, today there is debate about that, so we're, we're, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to share a little bit about that. They contend that Israel has, um, doesn't have rights to Jerusalem as their capital since the Arabs were the first peoples who inhabited the city. Is this true? What is Jerusalem's story and why is there such debate about its ownership and its heritage? This article claims that the Arabs were the first ones to be there in Jerusalem. And I ask, really? That was interesting. Really? The Arabs were the first ones there. How old is Jerusalem then? In 1996, the Jewish nation celebrated 3,000 years of Jerusalem's existence. Is Jerusalem only 3,000 years old? There's even debate about that. According to Israel, it is 3,000 years old. The article contends that Jerusalem is really a 5,000-year-old city. And it was this was information taken from an uh, Arab Studies Quarterly, Volume 16, Number 4, Fall 1994. Okay. It was 5,000 years old. Okay, so Jerusalem is saying that it exists. Israel says that Jerusalem existed for 3,000, yet there's 2,000 years that we don't know anything about. Or do we? Or is this correct? Have you heard about that? The article states, K.J. Astley, the late Camille Jamil al-Sali, was a native of Jerusalem. He received his Ph.D. from Humboldt University, Berlin, 1967. He was engaged in research on Jerusalem at the University of Jordan. In 1982, he was awarded the prize of the Kuwait Foundation for the Advancement of Sciences. Early in 1994, the Israeli press reported that the Israeli Ministry of Tourism and the Municipality of Jerusalem would organize countrywide celebrations in two and a half years to mark the 3,000-year anniversary of the founding of the city of Jerusalem. The ministry, now remember, I am reading from this article I'm talking about called uh, Jerusalem History, the one who actually does not believe that that the, the Israel has claims to Jerusalem. So so keep that in mind, and I will let you know when um, I'm done quoting this particular article. However, in 1970, a musical festival was held in Israel marking the 4,000-year anniversary of the founding of Jerusalem. At that time, the Israeli newspaper, Devar, criticized the organizer of the festival for reducing the age of the city by 1,000 years. 
the question that presents itself here is how could the age of the city be reduced once again by another thousand years by the Israeli municipality and the ministry? Continuing, it is evident that neither anniversary or historical, this is the anniversary is historically correct. It seems that both were chosen for touristic and artistic considerations, and that the choice of the second was the politically mo- was politically motivated. It is well known that the correct age. Now, did you know that? I don't know. I didn't know. Uh, the correct age of the city, according to historical records, is five thousand years old. The estimation is given by the Israeli historian Zev Vilne among the sources, in his comprehensive work in Hebrew, the Encyclopedia for the Knowledge of the Land of Israel, in the chapter titled Jerusalem, the Capital of Israel. The same age is given by the Israeli historians Ephraim and Menachem tell me at the end of their book, Jerusalem. What is the discrepancy? Why does Israel claim the eternal city is only 3,000 years old? Israel only calculates the age of the city from the time that David, who reigned in Israel from 1010 BCE to, or BC, it would be either before Christ or BCE, which stands for before common era, era, not error, era. Uh, um, King David reigned from 1010 to 970. He, that he established Jerusalem as the capital of the United Kingdom of Israel in 1003 B.C. The article states, no, no source, and, and so then this article goes on to state that no source exi- exists which claims that David was the founder of Jerusalem. The Old Testament narrates, in detail, how David's soldiers broke into the city after passing through the famous tunnel, Sinor, in the Old Testament. The plain truth is that David did not found Jerusalem. Instead, according to the text of the Bible and Professor Vilnius' encyclopedia, he occupied, did you get that? Occupied an already inhabited city. It is this occupation which occurred in the year 1000 B.C. Now, have you heard that the Palestinians are crying out, and so are a lot of the Islamic um, clerics and muftis, they're crying out that that, uh, Jerusalem is occupied right now by Israel and that it actually belongs to the Palestinians. It actually belongs to the Arab people. This article is emphasizing that particular occupation. We're going to take a look and see, is it occupied by Israel? Has it always been occupied? We know from biblical accounts that David did not found Jerusalem, but who did? And where did Jerusalem come from? Does anybody know? Well, you know, I do a lot of research. I'm trying to find exactly where it it is in history books who founded it. It doesn't even really say who founded it. It just says where it was recorded. It was recorded in some Egyptian um, historical books. But where it was founded, 
there's a reason why it wasn't recorded, and we'll get into that in a moment. But before I I, I go into that, I want um, you to think about that question. Did he occupy it? And uh, did David occupy an already inhabited city? And if so, what really happened? Or did something else totally happen that uh, we need to take a look at? Taken from the book, The Coming Last Day Temple, the one I suggested, which is really good by Randall Price, an article found in Israel uh, Today magazine in February 1999 echoes the demand of current Muslim leaders. It says, in front of 200,000 Muslims gathered at the Temple Mount, Sheikh Ikramah Sabri, the Palestinian Mufti, demanded the liberation of Jerusalem and all of the Palestinian territory from the yoke of the Israeli occupiers. Some historians say Jerusalem was already 2,000 years old, and we took, you know, we're going to take a look at that, when David made Jerusalem Israel's capital. Others say less. So we need to take a look at how old Jerusalem is and who founded it and what kind of people were were there when David went into the city and made it his capital. And why is there so little history concerning this city? On an internet dictionary site called uh, the encyclopedia, thefreedictionary.com, slash Jerusalem, it states this. Despite uh, incomplete uh, ag- agricultural work, it is evident that Jerusalem was occupied as far back as uh, the 4th millennium B.C. in the late Bronze Age. Uh, that's about 2000 to 1500 BC. And now they're not saying occupied in the same way that they're saying that in the article in the Jerusalem history um, notes on the origins of the city. It says it was a Jebusite, Canaanite, which is the same as the Canaanite stronghold. David captured it in 1000. 3 BC from the Jebusites and the walled city after Solomon built after that Solomon built the temple on Mar- Moriah in the 10th century BC Jerusalem became the spiritual and political capital of the Hebrews in 586 BC it fell to the Babylonians and the temple was destroyed the people living there um, at the time were Canaanites Amorites Jeju- Jebusites Hittites and other races of whom had a culture and a language as well as art, industry, and agriculture. So, <clears throat> so this is what what you know. There were Jerusalem was occupied by someone. There were people in Jerusalem when David came and took the city. Now he conquered the city according to to the scriptures. He didn't occupied it, what were the Jews supposed to do? They were supposed to wipe out all the people in the cities in which they went. That's another subject for another day. So, in the article, Jerusalem in History, uh, the origins of the city and its tradition of tolerance, it says the oldest name of the city is Jerusalem, and that is Amoritic, 
I don't know how to say that. Uh, Salem or Shalem was the name of the Canaanite Amorite god, while Ura simply meant founded by. So what they're saying is that the Canaanite Amorite, Amorite god, Ura, is U-R-U. It's almost like Ur, but Ura simply meant founded by the Canaanite Amorite, Amorite god. So that's what they're saying, that Jerusalem was uh, founded by uh, them. The names of the two, two oldest rulers of the city, Saj Anu and Yakir Amo, were identified by the American archaeologist W.F. Albright as Amoritic. The Amorites, according to the Bible, are the original people of the land of Canaan. They, they had the same language as the Canaanites and were of the same Semitic stock. Many historians believe that the Amorites are an offshoot of the Canaanites who came originally from the Arabian Peninsula. In this regard, it is apt to quote the Bible. And then they want to quote um, Ezekiel 1.6, it says in the article. But it's really 16 verse 3, which says, and I'm going to get to it here this second because I actually should have copied it before I put all, it says, um, and say, this is what the Sovereign Lord says to Jerusalem, your ancestry and birth were in the land of the Canaanites. Your father was an Amorite and your mother was a Hittite. So what they're saying in this art article is that the Bible confirms that uh, Jerusalem was birthed by these people and that um, the Bible actually is supporting the fact that these people are the ones who really own Jerusalem and so they have rights to it. And the other thing I want you to pay attention to is who, who came originally from the Arabian Peninsula. Now we're gonna. I'm, there's a reason I'm telling you to pay attention to what I said here is because we're gonna find out: Are they from the Jebusites, the Canaanites, the Amalekites, all of them? Are they from the Arabian Peninsula? Now, the article goes on to say, in the second millennium, Jerusalem was inhabited by the Jebusites. In the Bible, the Jebusites are considered to be Canaanites. It was the Jebusites who first built the fortress Zion in the town. In the town. town is a, Zion is a Canaanite word, which means hill or height. The second name of Jerusalem was Jebus. The culture of Jebus was Canaanite, an ancient society which built many towns with well-built houses in numerous city-states, in industry and commerce and in an alphabet, in, in a religion which flourished for 2,000 years and were later borrowed by primitive Hebrews. So they're, what they're now they're saying is they're saying that not only were they the first ones in the city, but, they all, but the Hebrews actually got their belief in God from them. And we're going to show you what exactly the scripture says about it. <clears throat> Excuse me. But before we do that, I want to show you 
who these people are, who they worshipped, and we're gonna we're gonna talk about that just a little bit here. <clears throat> Excuse me. On a site called All About God, it talks about the Jebusites, the Amorites, the Girgashites, which is mentioned in Genesis ten sixteen. Now, as I did a research on this, most of the historical records are actually from the scripture itself. So um, there wasn't a whole lot of recorded history other than what is written in the scripture. So it was very difficult to find uh, history on them. I did get the history of their gods and what they were like. And so a brief um, idea of what these people may be like, but uh, it was, there wasn't a whole lot of information out there. I can't say that I've read a whole bunch of books on them either, but um, what I found on the Internet was very limited. So it was the Jebusites, the Amorites, the Girgashites, Amorites, Canaanites, Girgashites, and Jebusites in Genesis 15:21. And I'll give you a couple examples. So I have come to rescue them from the Egyptians and lead them out of Egypt so that their own good for into their own good and spacious land. It is a land flowing with milk and honey, the land where the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites live. That's Exodus 3:8. Exodus 3.17 says, I promise to rescue you from the oppression of the Egyptians. I will lead you to the land now occupied by the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites, a land flowing with milk and honey. Going back a little bit further in Exodus 13.5, it says, You must celebrate this day when the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. This is the land he swore to give your ancestors, a land flowing with milk and honey. Exodus 23.23 says, For my angel will go before you and bring you into the land of the Amorites, the Hittites, Perizzites, Canaanites, Hivites, and Jebusites, so you may live there, and I will destroy them. Now, why would God want to destroy them? So he's actually commanding Israel to destroy them because he wants to destroy them. Why would the God of Israel want to destroy these people? Again, Exodus 33.2 says, And I will send an angel before you to drive out the Canaanites, Amorites, Hittites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. Exodus 34.11 says, Your responsibility is to obey all of my camp commands I'm giving you today. Then I will surely drive out all those who stand in your way, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Numbers 13.29, the Amalekites live in the Negev, the Hittites, Jebusites, and the Amorites live in the hill country. The Canaanites live along the coast of the Mediterranean Sea and along the Jordan Valley. Numbers 13.29, Deuteronomy. 7-1, when the Lord your God brings you into the land you are about to enter and occupy, and it doesn't mean to occupy without reason, it means to live there. Now, when when it's talked about being occupied today, it says occupied, meaning taken over without right. God here means to occupy, to live there, to establish as your own, to to not just be over a people and to suppress a people. It is to to take the land. He will clear away many nations ahead of you. God will clear away many 
nations of heavy, the Hittites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. These seven nations are all more powerful than you. Deuteronomy 7.1. Deuteronomy 20.17. You must completely destroy the Hittites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, just as the Lord your God has commanded you. Now, it's all of these people, these people. And so the guy that wrote this article was correct in the fact that these people actually live there because... He knows it by scriptures. He knows it, and and I can't find a whole lot that actually talks about it other than the scriptures. Joshua 9.1 says, Now all the kings west of the Jordan heard about what had happened in Egypt. There were the kings of the Hittites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Parasites, Hittites, and Jebusites who lived in the hill country in the western foothills and along the coast of the Mediterranean Sea as far north as the Lebanon Mountains. Now, you're getting an idea about something here. In this area, it wasn't just one nation. It was a group, people groups. These were groups of people. There was no real nation there in which they went into. These were kingdoms of people. These were people groups. Like Egypt was a nation. These were just people living in that area. And I will do uh, Joshua 12, too, just a couple more. I want, uh, there's a reason I'm doing this. I want you to get an idea of what it is talking, the scriptures talk about. In, including the hill country, the western foothills, the Jordan Valley, the mountain slopes, the Judean wilderness, the, the Negev, the people who lived in this region. Okay, so did you hear that? The people who lived in the region. The people who lived in the region. The people, not the nations. The people were the Hittites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. These are all king, the kings Israel defeated. So they're kings and people groups. The boundary then passed through the valley of the son of Hinnon along the southern slopes of the Jebusites where the city of Jerusalem is located. So it was already founded because it was already, it, it, the city of Jerusalem was located. Then it went west to the top of the mountain above the valley of Hinnon and on top of the northern end of the valley of Rephraim. And that's in Joshua 15.8. So the person who wrote the article actually read these scriptures to find out exactly how the Israelites took control of this area. And that's what I mean. Not just occupied it over, you know, just oppressed the people. They took it over and they were to destroy them. And that God was going to go before them and destroy these people groups that had their individual kings. Um just like Sodom and Gomorrah, were not, they were cities that had kings over their cities. There were smaller groups of people. Um, in Egypt, it was known as a great kingdom. So these were little, smaller kingdoms, per se. But today we would call them little nation states or little nations, little cities. City states, I guess, would be a better um, description of them. So let's take a look at the Canaanite people and why God would want to destroy these people. When, how you can understand these people is looking at their gods. And so we are going to take a look at them. The first one, most everybody who's listening to this program is going to know this God because the Bible speaks 
about God speaks against this God. This it's not really God, but this um, ugly, ugly, this destructive, horrible uh, religious worship. And this is the God of Moloch. Yes, the Canaanites worshipped the Amor and Amorite. The Canaanites and the Amorites worshipped the God of Moloch. Excuse me, Moloch. Though you may know him as Moloch, 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 was an ancient Near Eastern deity worshipped by several cultures in Phoenicia and the Levantine, the land, the the Canaanites, the Carthaginians, and Later, when Israel rejected the God of Israel after they were established in the land and why they were brought into captivity, they also started to worship the God of Moloch. They did not worship this God uh, until uh, they had the temple. And that is why they were dispersed and why Babylon was allowed to come in and take them and Assyria. Because they worshipped this horrible, horrible God um, at that time. But that's not the God that the Israelites began worshipping. Seen today as a sinister God, given his connections to ritual child sacrifice, Moloch is commonly depicted as Baal, Moloch, uh, Chimera, or a hybrid with the head and the horns of a bull, the body of a man. Art in the modern era shows him with squinted eyes, a strong, able torso, and the air of a demon, much like a classical representation of the devil himself. In fact, the foreboding visage of the deity was inspiration for the naming of of Moloch Horridus, the grotesque, thorny, devil lizard. Moloch was worshipped as a sun god, granting heat and light to his devotees and and their land. Because of his dominion over this celestial body, he is associated in modern mytholog- mythological academia with the Babylonian god Melech and the Greek Kronos. The majority of Moloch worship is thought to have been conducted at Topheth in Amon, Amon. Amon. Have you heard that city before? Amon. Amon, Jordan? Amon? Maybe. Doesn't say exactly where that is. Recent excavations have revealed remains of animal and human sacrifices at this site. And animal sacrifices was not unusual for the God of Israel, but human sacrifices was detestable to the God of Israel. Ample evidence for the unsettling practices that went hand-in-hand with the religious group wherever it took root. So wherever these people went, they brought Moloch. Moloch Moloch's association with the sun, a figure usually connotating supreme reign among polytheistic pantheons, connects him with several other deities in the ancient Near East and throughout many diverse mythologies. It is thought that Moloch may be a particular incarnation of Nimrod, the Babylonian god of the sun, the most powerful figure among among their deities. Nimrod was the great-grandson of Noah and was originally a Mesopotamian monarch 
the status of which corresponds with Moloch's meaning shameful king, who founded the cities of Babylon, Uruk, Akkad, and Kalna. And if biblical accounts are to be trusted, he also established the important cities of Nineveh and Kara. Far from merely founding the most influential cities of the Fertile Crescent, however, Nimrod is held accountable as the king who built the Tower of Babel. It is positive that Nimrod led his people to the worship of Baal, seen as a demonic figure in the Christian and Jewish traditions. It is most likely from the source that, that this source that Nimrod's reputation for dark antagonistic power arose. In Jewish in the Jewish Bible, Nimrod and Abraham are pitted against each other in an epic struggle allegorical of the clash between good and evil. In this legend, and this I'm taking from a site that talks about Moloch, so they're actually talking about a legend that I've not heard in the Bible, so it must be some other Jewish um, uh, source um, other than the scripture. And I'm not sure what that is. So anyway, Abraham, this this is what the um, story is. Abraham... Uh, is pitted against each other in an epic struggle allegorical of the clash between good and evil. In this legend, Nimrod is told that the stars portent that Abraham will be bon- will be good and evil. No, will be bomb and cause an end to the practice of idolatry. And so Nimrod has all newborn babies sacrificed an event with obvious ties to the ritual sacrifice associated with the figure of Moloch. The legend not only speaks to the classic themes of right and wrong and of heaven and hell, but also to the monotheism and polytheism painting Nimrod, perhaps a little unfairly, according to this article, as the representative of all polytheistic practices and faith. Nimrod's ascension to godhood is not so clearly depicted in ancient texts, though one tradition holds that after the king was murdered and torn into many small pieces, which were sent out among the people as a warning to those who would practice the worship of Baal, Nimrod's mother or wife collected, mother and wife both, uh, he married his mother, uh, his wife collected all of his parts. According to the tale, she then stitched them back together and claimed to to the people that he was still alive, but had simply become a god and so would not dying to, dying to speak or move about as before. And that is the story of Moloch. And I wanted to give you kind of an idea from uh, a place that actually talked about it. It was uh, Moloch.com. Who is Moloch? It's just a simple... Um, Articles about Moloch. What about the Amorites God, Amorite gods? Let's take a look at them because though there's not a whole lot of history, there is far more history about their gods than anything else. And what a person worships can really identify what their culture because then worship of a deity was the same as their political system. Uh, the United States is very unique in that we separate the two, politics and religion. Most 
um, countries outside of the West combine the two. They cannot have one without the other. So that's why when you study history, you can study a lot about the people by studying their religion. So the Amorite gods, who are they? Amorite is the Egyptian, in Egyptian it says, it's the word Amar or Akkadian. And you guys are going to laugh who know these words and I am just making a mess out of them. Tibnum and Amurkum. Uh, they're corresponding to the Sumerian Martu or Martu refers to a Semitic people who occupied the country west of the Euphrates from the second half of the third millennium BC and also the god they worshipped Amuro. Amuro or Martu are also names given to the Akkadian and Sumerian texts to the god of the Amorite, the Amuro people often forming part of the personal names. He is sometimes called he is sometimes called Il Amura. The god Amuro or Martu is sometimes described as a shepherd and the son of the sky god Anu. He is sometimes called Belu or Sadi or Belsad, Lord of the Mountain, and Durhu Sag Sikil Aki who dwells on the pure mountain, and Kirzaganti, who inhabits the shining mountain. Amura's wife is sometimes the goddess Asataram, Asaratam, sorry, who is northwest, who in northwest Semitic tradition and Hittite tradition appears as wife of the god El, which suggests that Amura may have indeed may indeed have a variation of that god. In Amura, if Amura was identical with El, it could explain why so few Amorite names are compounded with the name Amura, but so many are compounded with El. So they kind of believe their connection with their god. Amura also has storm god features like Adad. He he bears the epithet Remen Thunder, and he is even called Barakil or Hurler of the Thunderbolt. Kind of sounds similar to the Roman gods. And Adad the Adad of the Deluge. Yet his iconography is distinct from that of Adad, and he sometimes appears alongside Adad with a baton of power or a throw stick while Adad bears a conventional thunderbolt. So it really sounds like the gods that the Romans actually picked up. And it also sounds like well, the Viking gods, the old Viking gods are actually uh, in the Greek gods. They're similar. They're very similar. Roman, Greek, and the 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 Scandinavian gods were similar. And so it sounds like this actually spread in that direction. Now, when you look at this area, um, it says the Akkadians before 3000, um, that it was the Gutian invasion in 2112. In 2200, the Amorites invaded that area. In 1595, the Hittites, the Hittites sacked Babylon. So here they're all fighting against each other. They're all taking over each other. They're all conquering each other in that area. 
in the 1200s, the Armenians. In 1159, the Elamite invasion. In 750, the Chaldean invasion. And the 613, the Medes. So you have all these, and it became bigger and bigger and bigger um, uh, empires that began to take over these areas. But this area was in Assyria and Persia and Babylon and and not very much in the Arabian Peninsula, just there is the Arabian Desert, but it didn't go very far in that direction. In early Babylonian inscriptions, all Western lands, including Syria and Canaan, were known as the land of the Amorites, who twice conquered Babylonia at the end of the third and the beginning of the first millennium. The old name is an ethnic term evidently connected with the terms Amura and Amar used by Assyria and Egypt respectively. In the Sumerian spelling, Martu, that is M-A-R dot T-U, all caps, the name is as old as the first Babylonian dynasty. So you see where these people are coming from. It's Babylon. But from the 15th century B.C. onwards, it's syllabic equivalent Amura is applied primarily to the land extending north of Canaan as far as Kadesh on to the Orants. In unison with the decline of the Sumerian language in Mesopotamia, the Levant archaeological era known alternately as either MBI or immediate intermediate EBMD was the time of their most famous incursion. Persians. Though herdsmen, the Amorites were not peaceful pastoralists. They were fierce tribal clansmen who apparently forced themselves into lands they needed to graze their herds. So talk about occupied. They, these were apparently these people apparently forced themselves into lands they needed to graze their herds. I don't know of one country that doesn't conquer another and then gain their land. The urban Sumerians or the Akkadians considered their nomadic way of life with disgust and contempt. So those around them did not like that they came and just conquered people just to get their land so that they can graze their animals. At first, the Amorites were merely a regular irritant to the to the Ur, Third Empire, and that's where Abraham came from. But eventually, they undermined it to such an extent that the position of last king Ibas Sin was weakened, enabling his Elamite subjects to overthrow his rule. Amorites seem to have worshipped the moon god Sin and Amuro, known. Amorites, mostly those of Mari, wrote in a dialect of Akkadian found on tablets dating from 1800 to 1750 BC, showing many south northwest Semitic forms of, and constructions. The division into kingdoms was removed, has removed any trace of the Sumerian city-state, and with it disappeared most of its principles upon which they were founded. Men, land, and cattle ceased to belong physically to the gods or to the temples and the king. The new monarchs gave or let out for an indefinite period numerous parcels of royal or 
sacred dodal land freed the inhabitants of several cities from taxes and forced labor and and seemed to have encouraged by a by new society emerged a society of big farmers, free citizens, and enterprising merchants, which was to last throughout the ages. The priest assumed service of the gods and cared for the welfare of his subjects. And the economic life of the country was no longer exclusively or almost exclusively in their hands. So gives you an idea about these people. They were a nomadic tribe, and they actually did suppress and oppress people as they went into the land. The biblical Amorites was used, um, Amorites was used by the Israelites to refer to certain highland mountaineers or hillmen described in Genesis 14:7 as descendants of Canaan, who inhabited that land. In the Bible, they are described as a powerful people of great stature, like the height of the cedars, who had occupied the land east and west of the Jordan River. Their king Og being described as the last of the remnant of the giants. So there were giants that were in the land, Deuteronomy 3.11. God instructed that they wipe them all out. The biblical usage appears to show that the, the more specific Amorite and less precise general Canaanite term, terms were used synonymously, the former being characteristics of Judean, the latter Ephraimite, and Deuteronomic writers, as well as the Syrian Babylonians. A distinction is sometimes maintained, however, when the Amorites are spoken of as the people of the past, whereas the Canaanites are referred to as still surviving. So you get the idea that the Amorites were wiped out, and then the Canaanites kind of continued on. The biblical Amorites seem to have originally occupied the land stretching from the heights west of the Dead Sea to Hebron, embracing all Gilead and Bashan, with the Jordan Valley on the east of the river and the land of the two kings of the Amorites, Sihon and Og. Historically, these Amorites seem to have been linked to, Jeruz to the Jerusalem region, and the Jebusites may have been a subgroup of them. The southern slopes of the mountains of Judea are called the mountains of the Amorites. This is all in scripture. One possible etymology for Mount Moriah is mountain of the Amorites, with possible of the initial syllable. So... What's Mount Moriah? That's where Abraham sacrificed, or was supposed to sacrifice Isaac. And that's also the place where he stood, and God promised the land north, south, east, and west is from what he could see. So he stood there. Um, <clears throat> before these groups of people actually were there in, in the land, they were not there in the land. Deuteronomy 1.7 is actually a description of what was in the land when the people of Israel went in to conquer it. So these are groups that have developed since then, but Abraham was way before them. Now, five kings of the Amorites were first defeated with great slaughters by Joshua. They were again defeated at the waters of Meron by Joshua who smote them till there was none remaining. 
It is mentioned as a surprising circumstance that in the days of Samuel, there was peace between them and the Israelites. So there was none remaining at that time. They did. They wiped it out, as the Lord had said. Uh, They didn't just occupy. They didn't just oppress the people. They wiped them out. Genesis chapter 11 talks about the Tower of Babel. And it says, but the Lord came down to see the city and the tower that the men were building. The Lord said, if as one people speaking the same language they have begun to do this, then nothing they plan to do will be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and confuse their language so that they will not understand each other. So the Lord scattered them from there over the earth, and they stopped building the city. That is why it was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of the whole world. From there the Lord scattered them over the face of the whole earth. So you have to imagine that the people that actually spoke the same language was a small group. And you can see the Jebusites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Girgashites, and all of them were, all of them were small groups that actually uh, spread about the lands as God commanded or God forced in the Tower of Babel. In chapter, uh, verse 10, you see the account of Shem, and that is the line in which Abraham came from. In 12, chapter 12 of Genesis, verse 1, the Lord God said to Abram, now this is, you know, pretty much close to the time when uh, the Tower of Babel had um, been established, and they lived a lot longer then. But it was a few generations, I do not count how many, but if you're curious, go to verse 10 in chapter 11 and see how many generations it was to Abram. And then uh, the Lord called him and said, Abram, leave your country, your people, and your father's household and go to the land I will show you. So you have to understand, the the land was not established by anyone at that time. No one that we know of that is any historical records was in the land other than there's Sodom and Gomorrah at one area, which Lot chose that area. And uh, Abram chose more a desert area. God said to him, I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you and I will make your name great and you will be a blessing and I will bless those who bless you and whoever curses you I will curse and all the peoples of the earth will be blessed through you. From these groups, there is that the other group, which was actually a pretty, pretty great group, the Hittites. Now, what did the Hittites believe? Religion among the Hittites, an ancient people that lived in what is today Anatolia or in Turkey, the Hittites dominated the region from around 1680 until 1190 B.C., uh, so dominated was probably a good word for that because groups back then, the nations and small groups, as they were becoming empires and nations, would dominate people. It is believed that their religion was one of great syncretism, their central elements being gathered from the Haitians, the Sumerians, the Babylonians, the Assyrians, the Hurrians, the Luwians, uh, some of those I'd never heard of, and other peoples. Their mythology had taken several elements from Huraian, the Babylonian religions. So you see 
Babylon, 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 Babylon. We hear the hear of several generations of gods who ruled the cosmos who were challenged by a monster. Their religion is often characterized by the expression one thousand gods of Haiti. Hati I don't mean to say Haiti as in the country, but Hati is H A T T I. The gods that were incorporated into the Hittite pantheon, the system of gods, were arranged and classified according to their strengths and function. Moreover, the gods were arranged genealogically. At the center of the gods was the male storm god, Teshuba, and his wife, the sun goddess, Hubbut. One clear principle of the Hattite religion was that the pantheon could always be extended. The Hittite religion may have appeared to be tolerant, but beneath the surface where the conflicting gods of conquered peoples shared power, troubled realities were hidden. By incorporating foreign gods into the Hittite pantheon, the Hittite rulers secured the control over the subdued people in making the subdued people, people's gods part of the Hittite kingdom. Their gods became kin to the Hittite gods. And their people kin to the, kin to the Hittites. Thus, the Hittites exercised control over all See how they controlled and oppressed all the people. The Hittites used an earthly name for each god, but believed that the gods had specific names that they used for each other in the divine realm. The gods were, to to a large extent, human, except for their strength and power. They experienced the same emotions as humans, happiness, love, and anger. Kind of like the Roman and Greek gods. But... Their shape was often non-human. We see gods presented in the shape of different animals. The weather god was a bull. The god Samuro, a calf. Ishtar, Ishtar, very um, prominent god, was a lion. Interesting. While the hunting god was a deer. But gods, kind of interesting for that too, but gods could own could also be represented as things like weapons and stones. Now, I'm trying to see where where I'm at in my notes. So that is the those are the people in the gods in which they worship. It all came from the Babylonian area and the gods that came out of the worship of Babel, the Tower of Babel. And God, the God of the Hebrews, was making himself unique and known in the area that was prominently uh, giving, you know, expounding on and uh, delivering the God of Babylon. So in the article that I presented earlier, a continuation of the history of Jerusalem uh, from the article of those who do not uh, say that Israel can claim this land or Jerusalem, they say this, 
It is strange indeed that all these facts were set aside and ignored by the authorities in Israel. But the re and, and they're talking about the five thousand years and that that Jerusalem existed before David came. But the Jews don't deny that. They just they 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 celebrate the kingdom. Uh, their kingdom, United Kingdom of Israel, for three thousand years, and that that for them, Jerusalem is three thousand years old. So there, this article states that it is strange that these facts were set aside and ignored by the authorities in Israel, as though they set them aside on purpose to deceive. But it wasn't that at all. They were celebrating their nation, united with the conquer, conquering and uh, the capture of Jerusalem. And then all those people in the land were driven out or crushed or destroyed by God himself. But the reason, they say, is ready at hand. Uh, they say the reason that, that Israel authorities didn't say anything was Jerusalem during these 2,000 years, in the words of the Bible, did not belong to the people of Israel, but those people that it belongs to are no longer there. They don't exist in the form of a nation any longer. This article states that they are, that the present Palestinians are those people, but they are not those people. And I will show you who these people are. They say in this article, that Judges 19 um, supports what uh, they are saying. And it says, In those days when there was no king in Israel, certain Levites set out on a journey to seek his concubine. He had with him his servant. When they were near Jebus, i.e., Jerusalem, the day was far spent, and the servant said to his master, Come now, let us turn aside to the city of the Jebusites and spend the night in it. And his master said to him, we will not turn aside to the city of foreigners who do not belong to the people of Israel. They're saying that with that, 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 that it proves that they are not the um, first people. Well, neither were the people that took over Jerusalem. Nobody knows who actually founded Jerusalem. There is no historical record of who founded Jerusalem in the first place. All there is record of it of is that who actually were the ones who um, who were over Jerusalem. Egyptian Egypt was over Jerusalem for a while. It says, the article continues, bearing the facts about the origin of Jerusalem in mind, the Israeli writer Dan Almagor, writing in the Israeli paper, Yediot Aharonot, January 29, 1993, scoffed at the intended celebrations of the founding of Jerusalem a and as distressed that David was the occupier, not the found, founder of Jerusalem. Almagor said, let us be careful about the rules of truth and reality in our publishing. Accordingly, we must say truthfully, no festivities for 3,000-year anniversary of the foundation of Jerusalem, but for the occupation of Jerusalem. 
It was the foundation of Jerusalem for the city or the state of Israel. That's what they're celebrating. That's why they didn't say uh, that uh, there is an occupation. Palestinians are again claiming that the occupation, that they were the ones, the original ones in the land. Okay. So the very scripture that they used, Ezekiel 16.3, it says, this is what the Sovereign Lord says, say to the Jerusalem, your ancestry and your birth in the land of the Canaanites, your father was an Amorite and your mother was a Hittite. I want to show you who claims they founded Jerusalem as their city. Who was the one who occupied, took over the city of Jerusalem? And Ezekiel 36 tells you who that is. I'm going to read it to you. The word of the Lord came to me, son of man, confront Jerusalem with her detestable practices and say, this is what the sovereign Lord says to Jerusalem, your ancestry and your birth in the land, in the land of the Canaanites. Your father was an Amorite and your mother was a Hittite. On the day you were born, your cord was not cut, nor were you washed with water to make you clean, nor were you rubbed with salt or wrapped in cloth. No one looked on you with pity or had compassion enough to do any of these things for you. Rather, you were thrown out into the open fields, for on the day you were born, you were despised. God is saying that because he was there, the God of Israel was there at the time of the founding of Jerusalem. He was saying that when Jerusalem was founded, nobody else cared about Jerusalem, that it was a scorned city. You were thrown out to the open field, for on the day you were born, you were despised. So whoever founded the city of Jerusalem, it was a despised city to begin with. The Lord continues, Then I passed by and saw you kicking about in your blood, and as you lay there in your blood, there's a lot of evil and wickedness there, I said to you, Live! I made you grow like a plant of the field. You grew up and developed and became the most beautiful of jewels. Your breasts were formed and you, your hair grew. You were, were naked and bare. Later I passed by and when I looked at you and saw that you were old enough for love, I spread the corner of my garment over you and covered your nakedness. I gave you my solemn oath and entered into a covenant with you, declares the Lord, Sovereign Lord, and you became mine. So God, the God of the Bible, who talks about the Hittites, the Jebusites, the Amorites, the Girgashites, who has the history of all these people written down in his word, says he was the one who took over the city of Jerusalem. He is the one that oppressed it, I guess, or occupied it. And he was the one that cared for it and nurtured it and gave, he didn't found it bloodthirsty men founded the city of Jerusalem and he took over it. He said, I made you mine. 
the sovereign Lord, and you became, I passed it, I made a covenant with you, and you became mine. I bathed you with water, and I washed the blood from you, and I put ointments on you. I clothed you with embroidered dress and put leather sandals on you. I dressed you in fine linen and covered you with costly garments. I adorned you with ring on your nose, earrings on your ears, and beautiful crown on your head. So you were adorned with gold and silver. Your clothes were of fine linen and costly fabric, embroidered cloth. Your food was fine flour, honey, and olive oil. You became very beautiful and rose to be queen. And your fame spread among the nations on account of your beauty because the splendor I had given you made your beauty perfect, declares the sovereign Lord. So when... And you have to go to the people of Israel because the people of Israel were represented and declared the God who said this. And he, when he established Jerusalem as the united city and the covenant people of Israel, he entered into a covenant with Jerusalem, the city. He was the one who chose Jerusalem He was the one who adorned it. He is the one that brought beauty and splendor to it and made it queen. And then he says, but you trusted in your beauty and used your fame to become a prostitute. Now, this is talking about Jerusalem and the Jewish people who forsake the Lord and started to worship the gods that were in the city before he he came, passed by, and cleaned them up. There was blood in the city. And the the covenant people of Israel who had a covenant with God broke the covenant with God And this is what he's saying, as my people have distorted and started to worship Baal, you lavished, he says, you lavished your favors on anyone who passed by and your beauty became his. You took on some of the garments to make gaudy high places where you carried on your prostitution. Such things should not happen, nor should they ever occur. You also took fine jewelry I gave you, the jewelry made of my gold and silver, and you made for yourself male idols and engaged in prostitution with them. And you took your embroidered cloths to put on them, and you offered my oil and incense. I gave you to eat. You offer it as fragrant incense before them. That it that is what happened, declares the Lord. And you took your sons and your daughters whom you bore to me and sacrificed them as food to idols. There is the Baal worship, and the worship of Moloch, and the worship of the people that were in the city before God covenanted with the city and brought the people of Israel there as the covenant people. He destroyed and sent out those people, and now Israel was actually doing the very things to the people that that were in the city before him. And that's why he declares that the Hittites and the Amorites were there, and that the, that's what the mother of the cities were were them, and they were the ones that bloodied this city. Those are the ones who did horrendous things in that city, and God took it, passed by, and made it beautiful. And, He said, in all your detestable practices and your prostitution, you did not remember the days of your youth when you were naked and bare, kicking about in your blood. Woe, woe to you, declares the sovereign Lord. In addition to all your other wickedness, you built a mound for yourself and made a lofty shrine in every public square. 
at the head of every street you built your lofty shrines and degraded your beauty, offering your body with increasing promiscuity to anyone who passed by. You engaged in prostitution with the Egyptians. You lust your lustful neighbors and provoked me to anger with your increasing promiscuity. So I stretched out my hand against you and reduced your ter- territory. I gave you over to the greed of your enemies. So that was when Assyria came down and took Israel, the northern kingdom. And I gave you over to the greed of your enemies, the daughters of the Philistines who were shocked by your lewd conduct. You engaged in prostitution with the Assyrians too because you were insatiable and you even after that you still were not satisfied then you increased your promiscuity to include babylonia land of merchants but even with this you were not satisfied how weak-willed you are declares the sovereign lord when you do all these things acting like a brazen prostitute when you built your mounds at the head of every street and made your lofty shrines in every public square you were like a prostitute because you scorned payment they did it for free. Israel worshipped these gods. They worshipped these gods and uh, that were in the city before they, they brought, God was brought there and established his, his name there. In God says, The adulterous wife, you prefer strangers to your own husband. Every prostitute receives fee, but you're, you give gifts to all your lovers, bribing them to come to you from, from everywhere for you elicit favors. So in your prostitution, you are the opposite of others. No one runs after you for your favors. You are the very opposite, for you give payment, and none is given to you. Therefore, you prostitute hear the word of the lord this is what the sovereign lord says because you poured out your wealth and exposed your nakedness in your promiscuity with your lovers and because of all your detestable idols and because you gave them your children's blood therefore i am going to gather all your lovers whom you found pleasure those who you loved as well as those you hated i will gather them against you from all all around and will strip you in front of them and they will see all your nakedness. I will sentence you to punishment of a woman who commit adultery and shed blood. I will bring upon you the blood vengeance of my wrath and jealous anger. Then I will hand you over to your lovers, and they will tear you down, tear down your mounds and destroy your lofty shrines. They will strip you of your clothes and take your fine jewelry and leave you naked and bare. They will bring a mob against you who will stone you and hack you to pieces with their swords. They will burn down your houses and inflict punishment on you in the sight of many women. I will put a stop to your prostitution, and you will no longer pay your lovers. Then my wrath against you will subside, and my jealous anger will turn away from you, and I will be calm and no longer angry, because God does not like the God of the Hittites, the Amorites, the Jesuits. He wiped them out. The Girgashites, he wiped them out. The Canaanites, he wiped them out of the city and brought Israel in the day that David united the city. Because you did not remember the days of your youth, but enraged me with all these things, I will surely bring down on your head what you have done, declares the Sovereign Lord. Did you not add lewdness to all your other detestable practices? Everyone who quotes Proverbs will quote this proverb 
about you. Like mother, like daughter, you are a true daughter of your mother who despised her husband and her children, and you are a true sister of your sisters who despised their husband and their children. Your mother was a Hittite and your father an Amorite. Your older sister was Samaria who lived in the north of you with her daughters and your younger sister who lived in the south of you with the daughters of Sodom and was Sodom. You not only walked in their ways and copied their detestable practices, but in all your ways you soon became more depraved than than they. And if you read Ezekiel, the priests were offering a sacrifice of children in the temple, the first temple. They were so wicked, they offered infants and worship to all of these gods within the temple, in the Holy of Holies. They offered these. And this is why it so disturbed God himself. But in all your ways, you soon became more depraved as they. As surely as I leave, declares the Lord, your sister Sodom and her daughters never did what you you and your daughters have done. Now, this is... This was the sin of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters were arrogant, overfed, and unconcerned. They did not help the poor and needy. They were haughty and did detestable things before me. One thing that was happening a lot was the priests were throwing away their wives. Um, they, For no reason, they were divorcing their wives and making them um, poverty and making them suffer. Uh, and it was the priests that were doing this. Therefore, I did away with them, as you have seen. Samaria did not commit half the sins you did. You have done more detestable things than they, and they have made your sisters seem righteous by all these things you have done. Bear your disgrace, for you have furnished some justification for your sisters. Because your sins were more vile than theirs, they appear more righteous than you. So then be ashamed and bear your disgrace, for you have made your sisters appear righteous. However, I will restore the fortunes of Sodom and her daughters and of Samaria and her daughters and the fortunes along with them so that you may bear your disgrace and be ashamed. And all of, and all of you have done in giving them comfort. So in other words, he's saying that I, Sodom will look better than you. They will look better than you do. Well, you threw away all that I gave you. And they will look better. And your sister Sodom with her daughters and Samaria with her daughters will return to what they were before. And you and your daughters will return to what you were before. You would not even mention your sister Sodom in the day of your pride before your wickedness was uncovered. Even so, you are now scorned by the daughters of Edom. And who are those? Pay attention to that. And all her neighbors and the daughters of the Philistines, all those around you who despise you, you who bear the consequence of your lewdness and your detestable practices, declares the Lord. So we know that the Philistines and the Edomites were still in the land. This is what the Sovereign Lord says, and I'm almost done here so I can continue to to share what I have in the remaining time I have. I will deal with you as you deserve because you have despised my oath by breaking the covenant. The Israelites broke the covenant and therefore he, the covenant with Jerusalem, which he said he was going to put his name forever, he had to punish them and had to um, bring the same kind of destruction that he brought on the Jebusites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Canaanites the Girgashites, all the people in the land. 
but those people were not the people that God chose. God chose Abraham and promised a covenant to him and his descendants forever. Yet I will remember the covenant I made with you in the days of your youth. I will establish an everlasting covenant with you. Then you will remember your ways and be ashamed when you receive your sisters, both those who are older than you and those who are younger. I will give them to you as daughters, but not on the basis of my covenant with you. So I will establish my covenant with you, and I will, and you will know that I am the Lord. Then, when I make atonement for you for all you have done, you will remember and be ashamed and never again open your mouth because of your humiliation, declares the Lord. God, in his righteousness and his holy covenant with Jerusalem, said he was going to make an atonement for the city and reestablish the covenant. So even though he had to punish and send them away and out of the land, just like he did with the Hittites, Jebusites, the Girgashites, destroyed them and sent them away. He had to send Israel away as well because he had declared that he was going to make Jerusalem his name and he did make it his name and he had to send them away, his own covenant people. So who was the one who truly founded or occupied Jerusalem? It was the God of Israel. He was the one. Now back to that article in Jerusalem in History. Uh, <clears throat> Um, hang on a second. I want to see where I want to, want to. They said that the people of Benjamin did not drive out the Jebusites who dwelt in Jerusalem. So the Jebusites have dwelt with the people of Benjamin in Jerusalem to this day. They are claiming that the Palestinians are the Jebusites. And uh, it's he quotes somewhere, and I don't know. To this day refers, of course, to the time of writing this chapter of the Old Testament about the 5th century B.C., but the time may be carried forward to a present day. The Arabs of Jerusalem, as as of those of, the Pal- of Palestine, are in their majority the descendants of those who lived in the country since time immemorable. They are saying that these are the Arabs, but they are wrong because they are not Arabs. The Palestinians are not, today, are not the descendants of Jebusites. He says that Delezi O'Leary pointed out in Arabia before Muhammad, the majority of the present Palestinian peasants are the descendants of those who preceded the Israelites. Well, they're talking about Israelites as a nation, but God gave Abraham the land before Israel was a nation before anyone was a nation there in the land. just took them a little longer to get there. In the Golden Bowl, the British anthropologist Sir James Fraser, 1854-1941, stressed that the Arabic-speaking peasants of Palestine are the progeny of the tribes that settled in the country before the Israelite invasion. They are still adhering to the land. They never left it and were never uprooted from it. Now, that is totally against what the scriptures say. But the scripture does say that that they did leave some in the land. They disobeyed the Lord, disobeyed God. And that's where the Philistines come from. They were a thorn in their side for a long time. Because 
the view is often held, and the article is going on, I'm continuing, and expressed a sincere people that the Arabs are mere interpol interlopers in Palestine and not to give way to the return of the rightful and historical owners of the land of the Bible, a further word may be said regarding the ethnology of the land. The simple fact is that the majority of the Arab people of Palestine are not descendants of those new arrivals who intruded with the Islamic Arab conquest in the 7th century. So what they're saying, because the Ottoman Empire, or Actually, the, the Arabs came in in 600 um, uh, AD and took over the land. And they're saying that it's not those people, but it's the people way before Israel was a nation. Well, they're forgetting Abraham was given by God those lands before there was really anyone. The only one that was in the area was Sodom and Gomorrah, and that's not the land he took. The article goes on to say, and we're almost done with this so that I can show you who these people are. The majority of the native Palestinians, both Christian and Muslim Arabs, are of a mixed race whose connection with the lands reach, reaches back to every a very early history. Well, the Christians um, and Muslims were not very early as far as early they're talking about. There is a natural tendency for history to be simplified by the concept that all Muslims of the conquered lands came in and assumed control from the outside. And it is an understandable fancy for most of the Muslim population to believe that their ancestors were of the conquering race. And they did the same thing that God did to Jerusalem. They conquered the area and took it over and killed everybody in it. They did. Of course, and they still do. They still do it. And they are, you know, they're going to do it, continue to do it, because that's just how they are. Of course, considerable numbers of real Arabs from Arabia did settle in the new possessions, and there are involuminous general and local histories of history-minded Islamic peoples record, records of such settlements. But the Arabs are not their original Jebusites, Hittites, Canaanites. Those were other people. Those were those were not from the Arab Peninsula, Saudi Arabia. That's where the Arabs are from. That peninsula. Peninsula. So, who really are the Palestinians? In his book *Jerusalem: Rushing Toward the Midnight Hour*, Robert Smith describes the current population in Palestine. Listen very carefully. Over the years, Arabs from 29 different Arab countries have moved into the area to take advantage of jobs and an affluent society which had been created by the industry of the Jewish state. Before this, a, a Palestinian was anyone living in Palestine, namely Jews, Arabs, and Christians. But the Jews were always the ones who had more living there in the area than even when Arabs ruled the area. Um, so the Palestinians today 
are from 29 different Arab countries who've moved into the area. Most of the leadership of the Palestinians are not native to the land of Israel at all. Even Yasser Arafat was not a Palestinian. He was an Egyptian-born revolutionary trained in the former Soviet Union and sent from the Soviets with their blessing to take advantage of the vacuum in the territories and to destabilize the Jewish state. That was his whole purpose there. The promise of the land, as I've been saying, was to the sons of Abraham. Now, you have to consider that the sons of Abraham are not just the sons of Isaac. You've got the sons of Ishmael. This covenant was confirmed with Abraham by God in Genesis chapter 12, like we've been talking, and prepared again in, uh, and repeated again in chapter 15, where the borders were set. Okay, so in chapter 15, and you want to take a look there because we don't have time to go there. From the Euphrates River in Iraq, the river of Egypt, the Nile was promised to all of Abraham's seed. Now listen to all of Abraham's seed. The very land has been possessed by the sons of Abraham ever since. The Arabs are also the sons of Abraham, and so are the Edomites. The present state of Israel was not only promised what Abraham could see from Bethel and what was included in Jacob's possession, namely of Canaan. So, what was promised to Israel, the state of Israel is what we see. is the west side of the Jordan. North of that, that would be the West Bank. That would be all the way up to Judea, Samaria, all of that up north and south and uh, west. On the other side of the Jordan to the Nile River and all that was the other sons of of Abram. Ezekiel uh, 37.25 says, They will live in the land I gave to my servant Jacob, the land where your fathers lived. They and their children and their children's children will live there forever. And David, my servant, will be their prince forever. While all the Middle East was promised to all of Abram's sons, the land which was shown to Abraham from his position at Bethel that little bridge of land on the Mediterranean coast and extending eastward to the Jordan River was promised to Isaac alone. Genesis 17, 7 and 8. I will establish my covenant as an everlasting covenant between me and you and your descendants after you for the generations to come to be your God and the God of your descendants after you. The whole land of Canaan where you are now an alien, I will give you as an everlasting possession to you and your descendants after you and I will be their God. In verse 21, the Lord makes the covenant promise specifically to Isaac who had not yet been born. <clears throat> but my covenant uh, will I establish with Isaac. The same promise was reaffirmed to Jacob, whose name was changed to Israel. Therefore, the promise is extended to the 12 sons and their tribes, the 12 tribes of Israel. The motivation to keep themselves a separate race and return to the land is found in verse 9 that says, Then God said to Abraham, As you... 
As for you, you must keep my covenant, you and your descendants, after you for the generations to come. We see it as an obligation pressed upon the Jewish people by God himself, inspired of international community, interference to forever possess the land of promise in the latter days of the return. According to Leviticus 25, 23-24, the land was never to be sold, nor was foreign possession ever to be allowed. It was forever to remain the heritage of Abraham's seed through Isaac and Jacob. The land must not be sold permanently because the land is mine and you are but aliens and my tenants. So it's mine. God is saying it's his. Throughout the country that you hold as a possession, you must provide for the redemption of the land. God blessed Ishmael also, the father of the Arabs and gave them all the rest of the land of the Middle East. However, Scripture foresees he would be a wild race with his hand against every man, and because of this wilderness, every man's hand would be against him. This has always been an accurate assessment of the spirit of the Arabian people. So they're the descendants of, of Abraham. That's who the Arab people are. But they were not given Jerusalem. They were not giving that side of the Jordan. They are given the other side. Genesis 16:10 through 12 says, The angel added, I will so increase your descendants that they will be too numerous to count. <clears throat> and this is talking to Ishmael, to Hagar. The angel of the Lord also said to her, You are now with child and you will have a son and you shall name him Ishmael. For the Lord has heard of your misery. He will be a wild donkey of a man. His hand will be against everyone um, and everyone's hand against him and he will live in hostility toward all his brothers. Now while the Bible is full of references to this promise and the covenant between God, Abraham and his posterity, especially as it concerns the city of Jerusalem, the Temple Mount and the Promised Land, the Quran has no mention of Jerusalem whatsoever. However, the Quran does agree that the city and the land must belong to the Jews in the latter times. Surah 5 says, the table, and it describes the land reserved for the Jews, and also blesses the Jews in the forecast, in the land, and forecasts their return to the land. It also says that all of this will happen in the end of days. The article that we are focusing on, Jerusalem in History, says as far as the population throughout the centuries is concerned, it must be underlined that from the 7th century of the Christian era until the 19th century, the Jews lived as a tiny minority in Jerusalem. They virtually disappeared after the wars of 70 and 135 A.D. Tomorrow on the show that I will have with Susan Puzio, I will focus on what happened to these people. I will focus more on what these people are and who are the Palestinians. I will focus on what happened at that time. I will not go into it today, nor do I have time. Uh, So join me at 1 o'clock tomorrow, Eastern Time. There are also the archives of that available, and I will put them on my website or my Facebook site, and I will also um, include them in some of the groups. They will also be on Blog Talk Radio eventually. and uh, But you can go to the propheticnews.com uh, 
to either hear it live or get some archives. Now, it is Jordan who divides the land. Jordanians are not Arabs, but Edomites. Well, they're kind of, you know, I mean, if you want to really, they're the sons of Abraham, but they're not considered Arabs. They are the sons of Esau, the son of Isaac, the son of Abraham. They are not the historical people of the Hittites, the Jebusites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, and the Amalekites. They are Edomites. In Ezekiel 35, God promises judgment on Mount Seir. Seir is in the south Jordan. Jordan will be punished severely for her role in shedding the blood of the children of Israel, not of Esau, not Jacob. Jacob is Israel, not Esau. And appointing my land unto their possession, Ezekiel 36, 5. In Joel 1, 6, God complains that a nation has come upon my land. For a nation has come upon my land, strong and without number, whose teeth are the teeth of a lion, and he hath the cheek teeth of a great lion. Here lies the root of all the conflict today and the makings of this very scenario prophesied for the last days. Alas, for the last day, for the day of the Lord is at hand, and as a destruction from the Almighty shall it come, Joel 1.15. Jordan is responsible for Israel's grief and the international pressure upon her to part the land. These are the sons of Esau. These are not the Jebusites, the Gergeshites, the Hittites, and Amorites. These are the ones claiming they are the Palestinians, and they have a right to the land. And to Jerusalem. They are the ones that want to make um, Israel or uh, Jerusalem their capital. Amos 1.13 names Gaza and Lebanon as part with Jordan in the transgressions against the borders of Israel. There, then it points directly to Jordan, Ammon. Ha. For the transgression of Ammon, I will not turn away the punishment thereof. Why? Because they have enlarged their borders. Thus says, saith the Lord, for three transgressions of the children of Ammon, and for four I will not turn away the punishment thereof, because they have ripped up the woman with child of, uh, with child of Gilead, and they might that they might enlarge their border. border. Amos one thirteen. It was Jordan who took the West Bank from the state of Israel in 1947 and then sought to annex it, therefore enlarging the borders. Ezekiel 11.15 speaks of the people, inhabitants of Jerusalem, who would say, while you were away from the land in Dysphora, this land was given, to, given us to possess. These inhabitants relate to today's Palestinians in the Muslim section of the old city Jerusalem in all the east part and in and in all the east part of Jerusalem. God admits he did scatter them, but that he would be to them a little sanctuary, a limited blessing, and that he would gather them again and give you the land of Israel. The Palestinians, having come to Israel from 29 different countries, are the people of the nations who have come upon his land, and are the inhabitants of Jerusalem who are saying, while you were driven out of the land, the land has become our inheritance. Ammon, Edom, Moab, and Ammon, or Mount Seir, which is in Jordan, are the aggressors who, out of perpetual hate, I, for example, 
hate that is taught and perpetuated cause bloody terrorism upon Israel. Ezekiel 35.5 says, Because thou hast had perpetual hatred and hast shed the blood of the children of Israel by the force of the sword in the time of their calamity, in that in the time that their iniquity had an end. Mount Seir in Jordan was the home of Esau, the brother of Jacob. Esau and his family lived in the barren wasteland, while Jacob and his sons lived in the land of milk and honey. A perpetual hate for Jacob, heir of the promise, was passed on from generation to generation as the jealousy of Esau turned to acute resentment. We can be sure that each generation of Edomites heard the story told in anger, bitterness, and bitterness how Jacob stole the birthright and the blessing from his brother Esau. It was plainly said that Isaac had tricked and that the land of blessing, i.e. the Holy Land, brought by uh, right of birthright belonged to Esau and his descendants. God himself marked Esau as a very profane person. Esau's resistance of the Israelites' possession of the Holy Land began as far back as Moses when he sought to lead Israel into the Promised Land. Their first resistance was Edom, who refused to let them cross. The history of Edom shows them to be a very treacherous, quarrelsome people, always ready to throw the Jews out of the land. It was Edom who joined Moab and Ammon, same as Jordan today, to destroy Israel and Jerusalem in Jehoshaphat's day. And it will be the same place of their destruction that again God will deal with them. Joel 3, 1 and 2. When Babylon burned Jerusalem, it was Edom who stood close by and cried, Raise it, raise it, even to the foundations thereof, in Psalm 137.7. So we find that the Girgashites, the Hittites, and Amorites, that, that today the Palestinians, who are claiming to be Palestinians, are claiming that they were the ones there before Israel was. Well, if you want to go further back, Abraham was there before all these groups of individuals were, were there. And God gave the land to him and his descendants forever. They were the, the, the kingdoms and the cities that built up while, the, while God was building up his people, the 400 years in Egypt, to prepare his people to take the land and become a nation to secure the land. Next week, I will dive into the current rumblings in Jerusalem. Islam is taking up the cause of the Edomites, Islam, the religion as a whole, but for a totally other reason than the Edomites. The Edomites have a long-standing hatred but the Islamic religion has another reason to take Jerusalem. They and it's and it's more of a religion than a people. It's the it's the religion that has made the people. So the people can be from different parts of the uh earth, different people groups like Iran is Persia. It is not Arab 
or from the Arab Peninsula, um, and they're Islamic. A lot of places that are Islamic are not necessarily Arab. So it is Islam that is taking up the cause of the Edomites. Next week, I'm going to show you how Islam is taking up this cause. And I want to thank you for joining me today on this show as the day approaches. Remember Hebrews 10.25 that says, Let us not give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but let us encourage one another and all the more as you see the day approaching. I want to thank you for joining me. God bless.